Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. You can find the club on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and the club's website, commonwealthclub.org. I'm Richard Pivnicka, Honorary Council General of the Czech Republic in San Francisco in Silicon Valley, former member of the board of the Commonwealth Club, currently on the advisory board, and your chair for this evening's program. This program is part of the club's Goodlit series, underwritten by Bernard Osher Foundation. It's my pleasure to introduce tonight's distinguished speaker, Norman Eisen, former U.S. ambassador to the Czech Republic, former special counsel to President Obama for ethics and government reform, and the author of the new book, The Last Palace, Europe's Turbulent Century in Five Lives and One Legendary House. Ambassador Eisen is currently a fellow in the governance studies at the Brookings Institution. He's currently a consultant to the Judiciary Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives and the founder and former chair of the government watchdog group, Crew. While he served as ethics counsel to President Obama from 2009 to 2011, the press dubbed him Mr. No and the ethics czar He's known as a tough anti-corruption person. Following his service in the White House, he served as U.S. ambassador to the Czech Republic and deepened economic ties between the two nations. Before government service, Ambassador Eisen was an attorney specializing in litigation and investigations. His cases include Enron, the subprime financial collapse, the Monica Lewinsky matter, and the 2000 and 2004 presidential recounts. He was named one of the top lawyers by the Washingtonian magazine. Sounds like it could be another book. When Norm Eisen moved to the U.S. ambassador's residence in Prague and returned to the land his mother had fled after the Holocaust, he was startled to discover swastikas hidden beneath the furniture in his new home. But more about that later. In his new book, Ambassador Eisen tells the captivating tale of the upheavals that transformed Europe over the past century and of four remarkable people who have called the ambassador's residence home, including Ambassador uh, Shirley Temple Black, who many of you may have known. She was the club past president of the Board of Governors. You're about to hear a conversation about history, diplomacy, and the triumph of democracy in the face of tragedy and dictatorship. I'm sure there will also be some talk about politics, perhaps. Uh, we're pleased that Ambassador Eisen will be in conversation with Stephen Somm, editor of the Santa Clara Magazine, and perhaps more relevant for tonight, my attache at the uh, Czech Consulate. Stephen has worked in Czech higher education and with the country's leading educational foundation, and along with Senator Bob Dole, he took part in the Pilsen Talks held annually to mark the liberation of that city by General Patton's troops. Stephen was the editor of the Commonwealth Club book, Each a Mighty Voice. It's a compilation of the most memorable speeches at the club during the club's first 100 years. Mr. Ambassador, I hope you are in the next edition. Please welcome Ambassador Norman Eisen and Stephen Somm. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank that you, Richard. Beautiful introduction. Thank you, everyone. All right. Well, welcome, Norman Eisen, or as we say in Czech, Vitam Evas, right? Děkuji vám moc krát, pane Stevene. I have no idea what that actually means. <laughs> so, thank you for joining us here this evening in, in San Francisco. You've written a remarkable book here. Uh, the Last Palace, right, as, as uh, Richard noted in, in the introduction, you kind of captured a whole century in the lives that you, you tell the story through. Um, how did you come to write the, the book in this way? How did, the, how did you come up with this, this structure? Um, uh, a marvelous question. Will you indulge me if I just say a few thank yous Absolutely. before I describe the torment that led to the structure of this book? 
I, uh, I want to thank George for his rousing uh, uh, introduction, which echoed in the little uh, waiting area back there, the introduction to the introduction, I should say. And uh, I must uh, thank the Pivnikas, uh, Richard, of course, the, as you heard, the Consul General of the Czechs. We have his attache on stage with me, but also Barbara, who is the Consul General of the Slovaks. Uh, uh, so they uh, uh, unwind the so-called velvet divorce uh, when they uh, have breakfast uh, every morning. Uh, just uh, just down the block uh, from um, the home of uh, Ambassador uh, Shirley Temple Black, uh, somewhere here uh, are uh, Charlie Black, her son, and Susan Black, her daughter. They've become my adoptive family. There's Charlie, there's Susan. Uh, they've uh, very kindly adopted me uh, in the course of writing this book, and um, and they uh, uh, welcomed me as always, like uh, everybody in my family. Their uh, objective in life, uh, they think I'm too lean, so I always get a good meal <laughs> when I come and visit Cousin Charlie and Cousin Susan. Uh, and it's such an honor, finally, I'll say... Uh, Steve and all uh, to um, to be here to uh, speak at the Commonwealth Club when I when I told people I was coming to San Francisco to speak everybody asked me in in kind of hushed tones oh are you going to the Commonwealth Club <laughs> made me feel very good to say yes and uh, and 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 in particular because and this brings me to your question Steve in particular because of this club's connections. Uh, to uh, the Czech and Slovak lands that I write about uh, in The Last Palace, published to celebrate the 100-year anniversary of the founding of Czechoslovakia in 1918, and really telling a 100-year tale. The prism of Czechoslovakia uh, is one through which the uh, story of Europe and really of transatlantic relationships, the European-American ties over the past century uh, can be um, viewed, I think, uh, uh, through the windows of that house. It's not just that one of the first women presidents of the Commonwealth Club Board of Directors was Ambassador Black, but so many distinguished Czechs who appear in the book, from Jan Masaryk to President Havel to President Klaus, uh, all of them have been here, all show up uh, uh, in the last palace. So uh, just what a treat to be here with all of you. And now to your, to your very good question. When I left, uh, when I left the ambassadorship, uh, I, you know, as an ex-ambassador, it's a big month for ambassadors at the Commonwealth Club. I'd like to come back and hear that uh, Korean uh, bilateral conversation. Um, when I left uh, the ambassadorship um, and went to Brookings, I intended to write a, a book about the story, the ebbs and flows mm-hmm. of liberal democracy uh, in Europe over the past hundred years. And I started to write that book as a, uh, a weighty uh, scholarly tome. And I found that I couldn't even bear to write it. And who would want to read it, I thought. So I really racked my brain. Brookings, uh, our wonderful past president, uh, Strobe Talbot, my current boss, John Allen, they've been so marvelously supportive of me and of the book. And I really racked my brain to write something that could tell that tale but bring it to life. Mm -hmm. And I was having lunch uh, with another former ambassador complaining, uh, Den- Ambassador Dennis Ross, one of our great bipartisan, he's worked for both administrations, peacemakers. Um, uh, and uh, I was complaining to Ambassador Ross uh, that I couldn't uh, f- quite find the way to tell this story. And in the course of kvetching, um, uh, some uh, people say they do their best thinking in the shower. The Jewish people do their best thinking while kvetching, while complaining. <laughs> and in the course of complaining, it just fell into place. Why don't I tell the story of the century through the people who lived in the house and through the house itself? So uh, that enabled me to uh, start with the builder of the house, mm-hmm. 
Otto Petschek. Uh, he exemplified the hope and the exuberance of the new country of Czechoslovakia, the richest man in the country, and a great fan of America, of the new transatlantic relationship, Wilsonian democracy, and he built that house as a tribute right down to modeling elements of the home uh, on the uh, Versailles and the Petit Trianon, where the treaties uh, bringing World War I to an end were formed, and his struggle to build the house soon joined by the struggle of dealing with the Depression and the rise of fascism. Oh, it's a wonderful first chapter. And then uh, the next uh, the next three chapters, the next uh, uh, character uh, to tell the story of World War II, Rudolf Toussaint, uh, the uh, cultured, cultivated, complicated, conflicted German general who thought, he believed, that... Uh, Germany he did he was no fan of Hitler's, although Hitler was very fond of him. Uh, I write about some of the excruciating lunches to which Hitler uh, subjected him. Um, uh, but he thought if he stayed in, he could make things better. Uh, he was no model liberal. He was a conservative German old uh, German army man, uh, and his his conscience was consumed step by step, even as he tried to resist and tells the story of how uh, how it's impossible to uh, be a part of such a regime and save your soul. But he, like Otto Petschek, struggled to build this house, symbolizing the struggle for liberal democracy. I argue that Toussaint was transformed, and he has a great opportunity at the end of the war to redeem himself, to save the house from destruction, to save the city of Prague and the people in Prague, uh, from uh, a devastating, totally unknown story in the West. Uh, and that's his moment, his chance for redemption. You'll have to read the book to see how it turns <laughs> out. Obviously, I lived in the house, so that ought to be a clue to you. <laughs> the next character uh, was the, the third uh, of the great characters to tell the story of America's failure. And one of the stories in the book is the... Uh, America's uh, 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 engagement and then withdrawal from alliances. Um, Ambassador Lawrence Steinhardt, uh, post-war ambassador, came to Prague to save um, Prague from communist uh, takeover, and he fell in love with the house. And I tell the story of uh, that, his passionate affair with Czech democracy, his uh, quixotic efforts to get this house into the safekeeping of America, and uh, his efforts, symbolizing the effort to save Europe, his effort to save the house. The fourth character, of course, a revelation. Probably many in the room knew her. Uh, Some even called her mom. Uh, The fourth character, uh, this was one of the happiest coincidences I was thinking. How will I write about such a span of time? I have to capture the next big event in history after the communist takeover, the Prague Spring of 1968, and the uh, Velvet uh, Revolution of 1989. And by very fortunate happenstance, Shirley Temple Black was in Prague and in that house on the day that the Soviets invaded to crush the Prague Spring in 1968. She vowed to return as ambassador and help bring communism to an end. And of course, uh, she does that in 1989, a story that is too little known, her wonderful ambassadorizing. She's the fourth character. And then the fifth and final character is my mother. Uh, if Otto Petschek, who I told you about, was the wealthiest Czechoslovak Jew, my mother was the poorest Czechoslovak Jew. She grew up in a tiny house crammed with books. Her father was the shtetl, the village rabbi, far, far from Prague. Uh, and I weave my mother's tale in. You get three chapters of each of these four others, and my mother's tale of um, growing up in the country, surviving the Holocaust, returning to rebuild her life, um, and then ultimately uh, sending her son back with great trepidation, uh, warning me that I would discover all of the same forces were afoot, and I poo-pooed her, uh, only to find out, as you'll read in the book, uh, that um, uh, uh, I was too quick to dismiss my mom's painfully acquired knowledge of history, and that... uh, 
guided by her as my best advisor, uh, I take on today's uh, ghosts of illiberalism, and she and I have a uh, a, a great adventure together uh, in the last chapter of the book. So uh, that's the story of the book and how uh, I think through these human lives, it mm-hmm. tells the story of this past century. Well, there's there's one wonderful moment where you describe not quite an argument, a disagreement with, with your mother about the significance of finding, as, as Richard mentioned in the introduction, finding swastikas uh, underneath some of the furniture there in the house. Yes. So what are the two lessons that the, the two of you take away from that? Well, uh, the, um, uh, the, 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 my mother and I took two different lessons away from the discovery of the swastikas. I thought it was a marvelous uh, turn of history that here I, the child of a Czech Holocaust survivor, am living in a house that was occupied by the, seized by the same regime that deported my mother and her family to Auschwitz in cattle cars. And that this, as President Obama, when he invited me to take the job, said, what a marvelous turn of history. Uh, uh, it's, it's an only in America story. Uh, so I thought that was the lesson. And I, when I discovered the swastikas, I was, uh, of course, I had a little chill of horror, but I was uh, mostly amazed by the fact that uh, there had been this turn of history. To my mother, Steve, the swastikas symbolized something very different. To my mother, they represented the reason I start the book uh, uh, as I'm preparing to go to Prague, and I describe uh, uh, my mom's reluctance, conversations. I call her from Air Force One, and I eventually brought her around, then I call her to tell her about these swastikas. And to her, those swastikas represented the ineradicable weight of history and the inability, no matter how you might try, to escape the horrors of the past, and a warning sign uh, that illiberalism, hate, intolerance um, uh, would, uh, would never go away, that they're always there lurking under the table. And you'll have to read the book, and in particular the last part of the book, to see uh, who was right me or my mom, uh, based on my experiences with her as my diplomatic advisor. Well, I think it's fair to say, right, that that's, that's a story and what lessons we might take away or who's right might also depend on where, where we stop the narrative, right? Where does, yes. the, where does the cycle turn it? <laughs> so true. But since I wrote the book, I got to pick where to stop the narrative. <laughs> Some of my mother's friends, uh, uh, you know, still quibble with me about my authorial choices in that regard. Uh, As you can see, uh, I am uh, an inveterate uh, optimist. And um, uh, it's now an optimism tempered by experience. uh, But I will say that um, uh, I... And and it is a... I'm not the first American to make this mistake. Um, uh, I rushed in to Prague where angels feared to tread. And uh, I was very, your Commonwealth Club speaker, is he included in the 100 speeches, Havel? Havel, yeah, absolutely. He made it. Richard, I've got tough competition for volume two. (laughs) Maybe I got to filibuster some more, so there's good material (laughs) for Steve. Um, uh, I, so my mom warned me that the, uh, she presciently, uh, uh, more so than my official United States government briefers, warned me that the ghosts of history uh, were, were once again stirring in Europe. Intolerance, um, uh, 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 hostility. Uh, to uh, liberal democracies, the values of uh, diversity, of pluralism, and and, um, and above all, uh, the extremes of the right and of the left, anti-Semitism uh, and the Russian, uh, the, the Russian bear was uh, stirring, which had driven her from the country in 1949. And I poo-pooed her. 
because I'd been there with President Obama. I'd seen his rapturous welcome. I was there uh, when he signed the New START Treaty with uh, President Medvedev. And um, uh, and so I arrive, and my uh, fellow uh, Commonwealth Club guest, uh, President Havel, there's been a marked decline if you trace the, those Jan Masaryk, President Havel, down to me. Uh, but uh, President Havel uh, and I got to chatting uh, at a... Uh, we met uh, at a party I described. He was the surprise guest uh, at this party. I described the party. And he warned me of what was going on in the same words, virtually word for word, as my mother. <laughs> and I had to call her that night. I talked to her every day. I practiced my lamentable check with her. Uh, And I had to tell her, uh, Maminka, you were right. You were right. President Havel agrees with you. Uh, Maybe I need to rethink the situation. And then, of course, you'll read about all the stuff that happened and how I almost got run out of the country. Uh, But I survived to tell the tale. Well, Havel also gave you some interesting advice. Yes, uh, uh, President Havel, he, he, I was the last United States ambassador uh, who had the privilege uh, to be taken under uh, President Havel's wing. And you'll read about how he uh, came uh, to meet me for 15 minutes and we ended up, uh, the Israeli ambassador hosted a get-together and I uh, was very tired and I tried to call the Israeli Yaakov Levy, and beg off this surprise cocktail. He says, uh, oh, we've invited a special guest. He'll be so disappointed. No, you can't come. You can't not come. So uh, I uh, showed up, and President Havel came purportedly for 15 minutes to check out this uh, new American diplomat. And uh, after we'd been chatting... For uh, 14 minutes, uh, he leaned over to Yaakov, the Israeli. He said, Yaakov, in that heavy smoker's voice, Yaakov, have you got any champagne? And he ended up bringing the champagne. We talked for two hours. And at the end of that conversation, I saw him to the door. We would have many other conversations. He said to me, Norman, I said, said, Mr. President, what advice do you have for me in my new Job. I mean, what a thrill to meet this incredible hero, one of the greatest heroes of the 20th century, not just of Central Europe, uh, but really of democracy. And this, the story of the book, is the story of the resilience of democracy, despite its in, the intense attacks. So I uh, asked him for one last uh, lesson. I said, Mr. President, what advice do you have for me? He said, Norman... You must be a very undiplomatic diplomat. (laughs) And you'll see how that advice uh, played out over the course of my first year in Prague. So we can come back to your mother for a moment, I think, because you talked some about her. Um, Can you talk about a little bit more about where she was from? Because I think you mentioned uh, uh, Barbara Pivnica, right, being the the honorary consul general from the Slovak Republic, about that that shtetl where she was from. Yes. So um, Czechoslovakia, of course, was born. Uh, Jan Masaryk's uh, father, um, Tomasz uh, Masaryk, uh, uh, cooked up the country, uh, two professors, uh, him and uh, President Wilson. Uh, And uh, it was a uh, combination of the Czech lands, the historic Czech lands, of uh, Bohemia and Moravia with the Slovak lands, uh, sister Slavic uh, uh, nations within the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, put together in the uh, reordering after World War I. And my mother was from the easternmost part of that country of Czechoslovakia, from what is now Slovakia, a tiny uh, shtetl, a tiny village of uh, of uh, Sobranca, which now is in Slovakia, right near the border with Ukraine, and 
And uh, my mother lived there uh, until uh, she was sent to the ghetto in 1944. They kind of forgot uh, that there were Jews left in that uh, in that part of the country. If they'd been able to hang on a little longer, they would have avoided uh, avoided the concentration camps. Uh, and it was a very idyllic, um, very idyllic small town. Her father uh, was the uh, town's uh, all-purpose Jewish officiant. He was a rabbi. He was a shochet, a ritual slaughterer. Uh, he was a sofer, a scribe. He would write the, uh, write the uh, Jewish documents, the wedding contracts, the Torahs. Um, and so, and he was a moil. He did the, uh, the circumcisions. So uh, all sharp instruments were his specialty. <laughs> Pens, knives, and his brain was the sharpest of all. And he raised my mother very atypically. It was eight children, very large uh, Jewish uh, household. Uh, and uh, But he raised my mother very atypically. All the girls in his house, it was a... He was four daughters in, my mom was the baby, four daughters in, my grandfather, uh, Zalman Leib, uh, four daughters in before he had his first son. He had two sons and and six girls. And so he had very brilliant uh, daughters, and he taught his daughters uh, Jewish law, the Talmud, the Bible. My mom could not go out and play on the Sabbath, extremely orthodox family. She could not go out and play after lunch until she had studied her Jewish texts with her father. So it was a somewhat unusual house. The daughters, I write about them. My mom's sister was a feminist, a Zionist. My grandfather, very anti-Zionist. There should be no Jewish state in Israel, then Palestine, until the Messiah comes. And his oldest daughter, uh, my aunt, uh, uh, had a completely different view. And my mom was a very brilliant student. And the first the first of these uh, transition chapters that I write about her tells the story of how the schoolmaster comes to uh, ask my grandfather if my mother can go to uh, gymnasium, to college preparatory school, because my grandfather had wanted some education, junior high school level education, for each of his daughters, and the struggle between the ancient and the modern, and between this uh, 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 the old world of Europe and the new transatlantic world of modernism that that story symbolizes. So one of the things that's, that's fascinating about the, the book and the fact that you're telling your story about a, about a palace and, and through the people, you get a real sense of the physicality of, of history and the importance of that. Um, did you have a sense of that before you went, went to Prague as ambassador? I mean, how history resides there uh, in the way that it does? Um, this is so much better than just me standing up here and talking. <laughs> Steve's questions are wonderful. C- c- would you hand me your book for a minute? I felt very... Can I have the gavel too? I felt... Uh, <laughs> I felt very good in the green room when I saw all the little post-its. It made me, as an author, feel so good, and particularly because I use these same, it's an old litigator's trick, I use the same tiny post-its because the larger ones don't let you uh, particularize quite as much. I do believe in the, uh, I do believe in the physicality of history, and part of that moment that I had where I realized that I wanted to tell the story this way was the sixth character uh, in the book, which is this magnificent house. Uh, there are a number of you here tonight uh, who've been to the house, and, and uh, it in, in itself is a marvelous hybrid, uh, a t- totally idiosyncratic uh, that Otto Petschek built and tore down, again, symbolizing this effort to build democracy, to build transatlantic democracy. He built and tore it down. It took him uh, uh, 20 times as long to build this house, 150-room-plus house on acres of gardens and wonderful uh, features in the compound, city block with a couple little... Uh, 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 basically a city block compound. Um, 
it took him 20 times as long to build the house as it did the Empire State Building. He <laughs> taught himself uh, as it did the builders of the Empire State Building, which is roughly contemporaneous in the 20s and the 30s. He taught himself architecture by building and tearing down this house. And uh, it was, um, uh, for me, deeply symbolic, not only of the effort to our yearning to build a more perfect uh, democracy, um, but uh, uh, of the uh, European-American combination of transatlantic democracy that really was created uh, through Wilson's intervention in World War I, and it ushered in a new era. I debate with my Brookings colleague, I had my wonderful Brookings colleague, uh, Bob Kagan, released a book, um, The Jungle Grows Back, about this same cycle, although he and I have some different ideas. He's also a historian in part by training. He and I have some uh, different ideas about this century-long cycle, and my colleague Bill Galston came and gave an afterword at this event. And, uh, 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 And so the house... It physicalizes, it embodies, that's the word I'm looking for, it embodies not just uh, the ideas of democracy that Otto Petschek had. He he kept a copy of the League of Nations Charter, a pocket-sized copy, uh, with him at all times. They're still in the house. Everything is there. It would be hard to write this book if you didn't live in this house. Um, miraculously, uh, uh, there's so many artifacts that are still there. Um, but it also embodies the European-American marriage I found in the basement when I was exploring the house, and I kept finding rooms until the day I left. I went <laughs> looking for my daughter's lost bicycle, and I found three rooms I'd never seen before my last uh, week in the house while we were packing. Um uh, uh, it's also the marriage of European and American ideas. From some angles, it looks like a French, uh, a neo-Baroque, Beaux-Arts house. In other ways, it's startling, startlingly modern and American. I found uh, the first printed set of Frank Lloyd Wright blueprints from the 1920s, before he was very well known, heavily annotated in the basement of the house. And the house has one of Frank Lloyd Wright's signature modern features, a floating wall. Wright had the idea that you should break down the separation between inside and out, the most fundamental separation in architecture. So these, and there's another very famous house, the Villa Tugendhat in Brno, uh, in Brno uh, the great Mies, Mies van der Rohe's uh, uh, first great, uh, first great house, uh, also before he was known, has a floating wall. Otto Pechek invented the first Czech floating wall three years before Mies. So he was a very, very brilliant uh, innovator who uh, uh, also embodied this uh, uh, European uh, American and particularly European Central American, uh, a marriage of policy and hopes and dreams in the 20th century. Now, am I? Oh, I didn't answer your part. Did I know this before? No. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even pronounce Mies van der Rohe's name before I went to Prague. <laughs> Now, am I remembering right that you, before you moved to this palace, you lived in apartments up until then? Yes, my entire life was spent in uh, apartments before uh, moving into this house, which uh, was a great amusement to my mother, who liked to tell her Czechoslovak friends, uh, my son is moving into Otto Petschek's home, and it is his starter house. <laughs> <laughs> You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. So, 
So we've got some questions here, here from the audience. I'd like to make sure we have the chance to ask them, right? Since you yourself have served as, a, as an ambassador, what's your advice to a new generation of diplomats? Oh, to a new generation of diplomats, we need you more than ever. Please, please uh, come into international relations and you um, will find there's no uh, more important profession. Um, the uh, transatlantic relationship uh, requires uh, tremendous attention. It will require some rejuvenation. And um, uh, in that sense, though, I would not only limit my comments to uh, those who, since the question is in, about a new generation of diplomats, I won't only uh, point to those of us who have official titles as ambassador, consul generals, consuls general actually, consuls general, attaches, but every person in this room is an ambassador for the United States. You live here in San Francisco, one of the most visited uh, cities uh, in the uh, entire world, and whenever you meet somebody, uh, from another country. You represent America. You are the face of America. So that's a chance for you to be a diplomat. When you travel, that's a chance for you to be a diplomat. And I think in the way we conduct ourselves as a country, you know, one of the great lessons of the book, The Great Redeeming Force of Democracy, is that ultimately in democracies, uh, the there is a channel for the expression of the energy the wisdom, uh, the compassion, uh, and um, uh, 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 the activity of uh, the people. And I think there's uh, a great need for every American, as well as people applying, taking the State Department Foreign Service exam and participating uh, in all the ways I've described, there's a need for every American to uh, revive American diplomacy. So let me play devil's advocate for a moment, right? As, as someone who's lived and work in, worked in the Czech lands, I, I know how I feel about this, but why should, why should Americans care about this little country in the heart of Europe? Ah, uh, well, uh, I quote as an epigram uh, to one of the chapters, uh, Otto von Bismarck's uh, statement that um, he who controls Prague controls Europe. And um, the uh, uh, Prague, the Czech lands, the Slovak lands, uh, are described as Central Europe because they are smack dab in the middle of the continent. And that is why uh, uh, they have been the subject of a tug of war between West and East. That's another part of the book, Otto Petschek looking uh, looking to the West uh, to anchor uh, his vision uh, of this house and, and uh, the tug of war between Western democracy and uh, Eastern totalitarianism over the past century and the resurgent uh, 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 totalitarianism uh, that, uh, that we see emanating now um, across uh, Central uh, and Eastern Europe. And the uh, uh, so the, che the the Czechs are. I'm sorry that the Czechs have to be the canary in the coal mine of democracy, uh, but they the Czechs and uh, Slovaks have occupied that role for the past hundred years. They are the bellwether. I've just written a new Brookings report in which I covered the Czech and uh, and Slovak nations, and my colleagues wrote about Poland and Hungary. Uh, and the general fate, uh, how democracy is faring in Europe. Uh, I write in that report that I'm uh, encouraged because despite, of, uh, despite challenges, uh, some of these totalitarian leanings that, that I describe, uh, democracy is vibrant, it's strong uh, uh, in Prague, in Bratislava, and that's a good sign for the continent. So if you care about Europe... You should care about the Czech lands. And since Wilson's um, marriage of America 
uh, to uh, the European continent in uh, the end of uh, World War I it's, and its aftermath, America is inevitably drawn in. There is no avoiding European conflict. It's not just World War One; it's World War Two. it's the long struggle of the Cold War. You would have thought we'd learned our lesson from having taken our eye off the ball after World War One, having done it again after World War Two. I tell the untold story of how the coup, uh, the communist coup of 1948, in Prague was foreordained uh, by decisions that were made in 1945 and some surprising, very famous, the story is not known, very famous Americans who doomed the Czech lands to 40 years of communist domination. And with that, the Cold War is thought to have begun with the fall of Prague in 48. Uh, America's drawn back in, and yet we took our eye off the ball again, Steve. After 1989, we assumed it would be fine. We didn't do another Marshall Plan, and uh, we've seen what's happened uh, because of our... We're not solely to blame, but and we've, we had some successes in that uh, post-Cold War era, notably in Germany. Uh, but we see now the wobbly nature... Uh, of the fragile nature of democracy and how hard you have to work. So let us not make that mistake again in the future. That's one of the arguments that I make in the book, but I try to make it in very lively fashion. So some of the folks quite naturally also have some some questions related to uh, ethics uh, and government here at home. Understanding that you probably can't talk about the inner workings of the House Judiciary Committee. I have very, I'll warn you, let me see those questions. <laughs> Let's start right with that one. Eh. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to apologize to all of you. This is my first book talk uh, post. You know I love nothing better than to answer questions like, hey, Mr. No. Whatever happened to ethics and government reform? (laughs) If you've seen me on television, uh, I was until recently a CNN commentator and frequent columnist. And uh, uh, you know I I enjoy doing it, especially when I get paid to do it. That makes it even more (laughs) enjoyable. But uh, since uh, uh, taking my new role, uh, as a consultant for the House Judiciary Committee, I'm no longer able to answer this very interesting question. Fortunately, if you must know the answer to the question, hey, Mr. No, whatever happened to ethics and government reform, you'll find a rich repository of video clips and uh, <laughs> editorial columns uh, residing on the Internet. But I must uh, demure on all domestic questions out of an abundance uh, of caution, and as you can appreciate, uh, not to uh, do anything that would uh, uh, comment on my, uh, my current role. I tried to make that as charming as possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the questions that came in over, over Twitter was, uh, has to do with the silver screen and your role. Uh... Oh, that's more like it. <laughs> <laughs> And your role in in inspiring a a character in Grand Budapest Hotel. Yes, that is a wonderful story and also relates to that last card. And when I, you know, it is such a, um, uh, it's such a uh, privilege uh, to be an ambassador. And particularly for me, uh, as a child, of uh, of immigrant uh, parents, my father from Poland, my mother from Czechoslovakia. My parents had a very modest uh, small business, a hamburger stand in uh, South Los Angeles. Uh, I found that I have really constantly pinched myself in this incredible uh, opportunity that America affords uh, to someone like me as uh, the doors are open. Uh, it's a terrible uh, uh, struggle, of course, for for uh, the migrants who come here, uh, but for their children, uh, all opportunities are open. But none is as fun 
as uh, being ambassador. <laughs> uh, it was pretty fun when my law school classmate, Barack Obama, called me and said, uh, I'm going to run for President Norm. I'm going to run for president. Won't you, uh, you know, won't you help out? I went home and I told Lindsay, uh, no chance whatsoever. Uh, Hillary's going to, you know, she's got this race locked up. And Lindsay said, oh, no, he's going to win, proving my wife is a much smarter (laughs) prognosticator. This was at the end of 2006. And she said, I hope you didn't. I hope you didn't turn him down. I said, no, he's my friend. Of course I'm going to help him. And it was wonderful to be on a presidential campaign, to travel with the president, to work in the White House. But being ambassador is best of all. And part of the wonder of that is people just pop up. The most interesting people just pop up. And, uh, you know, when you're ambassador, you're an honorary member of the Famous Persons Club. I didn't even know it existed. (laughs) They all seem to know each other, and they just call you up, you know. And so somebody called me and said, Wes Anderson is coming, the head of a studio who I'd met on the Obama campaign. Wes Anderson is coming to Prague. Would you like to meet him? And we're big Wes Anderson fans in my house. I'd love to meet him. I hit it off with Wes. I showed him around town. He was working on a movie uh, set... uh, uh, set uh, in part uh, in Prague about the interwar years. And uh, we got to be friends. He came back. He stayed with me a second time. And then I got a call. He went off to write the script. And I got a call. Norm, Jeff Goldblum is coming to see you. Uh, it's a rule of the Famous Persons Club. You know, your, the ho- your home is always open to the other members, whether you want it to be or not. Uh, by the way, ambassadors are only honorary members. We're expelled. We're expelled from the club as soon as you're no longer ambassador. Former famous person. Um, probably violated a rule of the club by admitting that it exists. Uh, Wes has stayed. I, just, I correspond with and see him and Juman. Uh, uh, so he's stayed friends, and so has Jeff Goldblum. So he says, Jeff Goldblum. He's coming to see you. I said, Wes, that's wonderful, but why is Jeff Goldblum coming to see me? He says, because he's playing you in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) So Jeff Goldblum, who's still a very true and dear friend, I just spoke at the unveiling of uh, his star uh, on the Walk of Fame. You know, in Washington, D.C., ambassadors are a dime a dozen. Your cab driver, your dry cleaners probably was an ambassador from somewhere. But in, in, in L.A., they're a little more unusual, so he invited me to speak. And he did the talking book, the recorded book of The Last Palace, kindly. Um, so uh, he came to see me, and it uh, turns out that Wes had written a crusading lawyer uh, into the movie to be played by Jeff, and there's a scene where he stands up to the fascists, and he's the the ethics czar of the film, and I had a wonderful time with Jeff, who, as I said, also became a friend, and uh, he stayed with me, he trailed me to uh, observe my mannerisms, I had a beard at the time, he grew a very similar beard, he even wore one of my suits Oh, can I borrow that jacket just to get into the role, Norm? <laughs> so, um, so that's how I uh, came to be uh, a part of uh, that very wonderful movie. And really one of the most magical. There's so many marvelous uh, moments. And I felt like in a little tiny way, because one of the predecessors who I most admired was Ambassador Black, uh, that in my own little tiny way, I, I saw uh, what she uh, so loved uh, about the entertainment industry. Uh, really one of the most, of those magical times, I was invited to come to the Berlin, the Berlin Alle, the Berlin Film Festival, and walk the red carpet with, uh, with the stars of the film. When it premiered, it had its premiere. I hadn't seen it. I'd been, he sent me the script so I could... Um, so I could see what it's about, but to see it, and of course, as soon as I saw it, I said, oh, this is Wes Anderson's masterpiece. And then the next night was the Prague premiere, 
And uh, really, for, for me and for Lindsay, it was such a thrill to welcome the cast and crew came and uh, all the actors and uh, Bill Murray and Jeff. And um, uh, 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 that really was one of the most. And we had a, the party, of course, uh, in the last palace. So uh, it was a wonderful thing. And I encourage you all. I'll give you a little challenge. Go watch Isle of Dogs and see if you can find the ethics czar reference. It's in that movie, too. So uh, anybody, is, is there anybody here who, uh, who knows where it is? Free book, if anybody can say. Yes, where is it? Where is it? You've got to do better. You only get a free dust jacket. <laughs> it's close enough. At the very end, there's a character, and the title flashes. Uh, they give little names to each of the characters at the end of the movie, and this character is described as the ethics czar. She's a somewhat heroic but annoying character. <laughs> I think captures the essence, essence of ethics czardom very nicely. So you mentioned, mentioned Ambassador Black again just, just now. Um, and one of the wonderful details that you, you uh, note in the book is when she would head out... Um, Wearing a baseball cap with her initials on that. Yes. Um, and for checks, that those initials meant something yes. very particular. The um, the initials, uh, uh, which uh, her initials uh, uh, were S T B Shirley Temple Black, and those are the same initials as her next door neighbor, just across the road from her. Um, just across Zygmunda Wintra, uh, which I helped rename after another great Californian, Ronald Reagan. It's now known as Ronald Reagan Road. Um, uh, the next door neighbor is the Stadtny uh, Bezpechnost Polizia, the state security police, the dreaded STB. And so with it, with the Czechs love this, that she was mocking uh, the, uh, the security police with the use of her, uh, her cap, and she even wore it sometimes to observe demonstrations because she wanted to be noticed. This was part of the brilliance. You'll read about it in the book. She really was a brilliant, brilliant diplomat. She wanted to be noticed because it meant the police, the STB, would be less vicious with the protesters. So she made it a point to be that. She had a wonderful, dark sense of humor, uh, which perfectly fits with the, uh, with the uh, Czech ethos. Uh, and which, um, as you'll read, I attempted to channel in my uh, uh, ambassadorizing. So one of the notice they give you two glasses, two glasses of water, of water in case this you're a very must be planning on a very long evening. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, Shirley Temple Black. Um, she also she spoke here uh, right after she came back from Prague in '68. I remember seeing "I saw Soviet tanks in Prague" was kind of how the the the, the speech was speech was dubbed. Um, so you you capture that moment. You capture '68. You capture '89. Um, I'm also wondering, uh, with your own work in, uh, as, as ambassador, right, that you emphasized uh, working together, kind of collaboration, right, versus unilateralism. Yes. Um, can you talk about that? And my philosophy of diplomacy and of life uh, is that... Um, um, is one of reciprocity. So I believe the brilliance of America in uh, the past century, starting with the Wilsonian moment, when we rise to our finest moments, uh, is that uh, we exemplify a, uh, uh, a philosophy of generosity. And I found as ambassador that um, the Czechs were very, very willing uh, to... 
listen favorably to the things that were important to us as the United States. For example, uh, they were the only European ally to do a troop increase in Afghanistan as part of the mission my first year there. Uh, we almost doubled bilateral trade over my ambassadorial ten- tenure many times, the average for U.S. embassies in Europe. Um, the uh, 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 the reason was because they knew that I was working just as hard to advance check interests in the United States. I frequently, they wanted more foreign direct investment. I frequently traveled to the United States with check delegations to look for business opportunities, reciprocal ones, on the theory that that would create jobs in both places and that America would end up better off uh, through a philosophy of reciprocity. And, and uh, you know, I, I do think that that is, uh, that that is a lesson that uh, Ambassador Black uh, understood. Um, uh, you see that in the book uh, because um, she has the opportunity to put herself, uh, because of her worldwide fame, the fact that she's in Prague in the midst uh, of this uh, Velvet Revolution, the fall of communism, she really could have put herself first in the spotlight, made herself a pot- part of the story. She told her uh, embassy officers that a uh, movie can only have one star and that the star of this one needed to be the Czechs and that they would be the supporting cast. So she was the... Uh, they were the, she and and her team were the best supporting actors. So you know, there's a sense of that uh, balance uh, of relationships. I do have to say uh, that um, uh, that uh, if that the story that I tell, as wonderful as it is, is just the tip of the iceberg. And as you'll read in the book, there is a forthcoming second volume of Ambassador Black's brilliant autobiography. Many of you probably read Child Star, considered to be, it's not only me saying this, I'm biased, uh, uh, but considered uh, by uh, scholars and aficionados to be one of the greatest uh, show business autobiographies ever written. I know a little bit about the forthcoming second volume and it is even more brilliant and fascinating than Child Star. So uh, you'll read much more about how this philosophy of reciprocity, of generosity, of tolerance, of listening, of understanding people uh, 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 characterized Ambassador Black's uh, rich government career, made her so celebrated as Ambassador to Ghana, as Protocol Chief, uh, how it revolutionized the Foreign Service as she trained all new ambassadors right. for many years, and the culmination uh, of that uh, in her incredible tenure in Prague. I only write about a few weeks of that tenure. Uh, she really helped that country flourish. So you'll want to keep an eye for that book talk uh, coming to a Commonwealth Club near you. <laughs> well, you mentioned earlier how much of uh, the the palace interior survived, right? The objects in the house survived. Um, and you just now mentioned the importance of a supporting role. There's, a, there's, there's a, one character in particular who plays a very interesting supporting role throughout decades. Picorni. Uh, yes. Yes, Mr. Picorni, uh, one of the most fascinating characters in the book um, is Otto Petschek's uh, butler, uh, Mr. Picorni, and the two of them developed a symbiotic relationship. Um, uh, and uh, he continued, he started with Otto in the 20s, and he was still um, serving in that house during the Nazi era when the Soviets briefly invaded the house, when Ambassador Steinhardt lived there and secured the house for America. Uh, through almost a dozen ambassadors and uh, into uh, the beginnings of the Prague Spring. And so he saw every the three great um, uh, regimes uh, of the uh, 20th century, uh, some great and, and I believe magnificent, the American 
uh, transatlantic idea, uh, but also the most great and terrible Soviet communism and the Nazis. Uh, he saw them all pass through the doors of that house, and I felt like I got to know him because I, and I write about him, I had the modern-day reincarnation of Mr. Picorni, who cared so tenderly for the house, who even persuaded the Nazi occupiers not to get rid of Otto's Jewish artifacts. The Jewish books are still in Otto's library today. Um, uh, I felt like I had uh, the uh, privilege of knowing Picorni because I had a similar uh, major domo, Mr. Chernick, uh, who... uh, was when people would see the two of us, they probably assumed he was the ambassador. <laughs> Tall, pigeon-chested, silver-haired, always elegantly attired. Uh, and, uh, and he loved that house, as he once told me. He loved that house like a child. The same was mm. true of Mr. Picorni. Uh, and uh, I, I got to, I was so pleased, I got to make Mr. Chernick's dream come true. After working for the United States for decades, he retired, and he had once told me his dream was to come and see how a banquet was served in the White House, how an event, because he had done so many thousands of events for America, and he'd welcomed presidents, prime ministers, so many dignitaries. When I traveled with Obama, Obama had, uh, President Obama had a dinner for all of the European heads of Central and Eastern European heads of state. They all came in, 18 heads of state for dinner in that house. He wanted, Mr. Chernick wanted to see how uh, an event like that was done in the White House. And he wanted to go behind the scenes and look in the kitchen, see how the cooking, the service, the preparation, the hosting, he, um, uh, he wanted to compare it to how we did it in the house. And I was able, after he retired, all the ambassadors got together, and we brought him to Washington, D.C. Um, we put together a trip for him. I took him everywhere, the Pentagon, and, and he got to go behind the scenes at the White House. It just so happened that, um, uh, uh, that it was for the White House Hanukkah party was that night, so he'd seen me put on fancy Hanukkah parties he could compare. And it just so happened that a rabbi who had visited me in the Czech Republic was also the in charge of the keeping kosher in this same Hanukkah party. So Mr. Chernick came back. He said to me, I see the same rabbi everywhere. <laughs> that was the first thing he said. And then he told me about the party. So what was it like, Mr. Chernick? He said, well, he sniffed, well, it was fine, but not as good as our Hanukkah party. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you something about the caretakers of this house. So actually, when your family took up residence there, you held the first Passover seders, as far as you know, since the paychecks, right? Yes. Uh, the uh, the um, uh, uh, Passover Seder in the house, I write about it, uh, was very special for me. And it, it was part of the way I figured out, actually, that my mom and President Havel uh, had a point. It was very special because there had not been, a, as far as we know, there had not been a Passover Seder in the house since the Petcheks left. And Lindsay and I decided we have a great, vast dining room in that house. You can seat 70 uh, at rounds in that, uh, in that room. It's, it's not that much smaller than this room. Um, slightly more well lit. Uh, <laughs> And uh, and so we decided we'd have a Passover Seder. We did not. We wanted to do it as a diplomatic dinner. Uh, and so we did not uh, just invite Jewish people. We're very ecumenical. Anyhow, uh, we said we're going to invite. It's a holiday of freedom. And so we'll invite all of the people who work on freedom in the country. So we invited some of our fellow ambassadors who we had partnered with. Um, on uh, various uh, projects, we invited human rights activists from the private sector, newspaper and TV, uh, publishers, writers, editors, journalists who uh, exemplify the free press, uh, our friends in the uh, government 
who uh, worked uh, for various freedoms um, uh, uh, and um, full room. We we're having the Seder. And one after another, people came up to me and Lindsay and whispered to us, Ambassador, how did you know? I said, how did I know what? How did you know my mother was Jewish? <laughs> I, I had no idea. That one leaves, then the next one comes up to me. Excuse me, ambassador. Yes, says, whispers, how did you know my dad was Jewish? And a large number of the people we had invited without knowing turned out to have a Jewish ancestry. And so uh, afterwards, Lindsay and I were comparing notes. And of course, we thought that was delightful. What a wonderful thing. And I called my mother to tell her the story. And my mother said to me, oh, you think that's nice? She says, why do they have to keep it a secret? And uh, again, like with the swastika, she saw that uh, the people were still, these were some of the most powerful people in the country, and they were nervous about publicly identifying their Jewish identities uh, because of the history, because of the cognizance of the history. And I thought, uh, you'll read about the uh, how the scales were lifted from my eyes, but that conversation with my mother was a big one where I started to wonder, wait a minute, why don't people want to, as they would in the United States, why don't they want to proclaim uh, their history? I wonder if something's going on. Well, that seems like a good place for us to wrap up our conversation. So I'd like to say thank you very much, Norm Eisen, former U.S. ambassador to the Czech Republic, former special counsel to President Obama for ethics and government reform and author of the new book, The Last Palace, Europe's Turbulent Century in Five Lives and One Legendary House. We'd also like to thank everyone here in our audience in San Francisco and our audiences on radio, television, and the internet. This program has been part of the club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. So with that... I'm Stephen Salm, and this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.